Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SIPS podcast 2022. My name is Sergio Vucetic. I'm a professor of international affairs here at the University of Ottawa. And today I have a great pleasure of talking to two wonderful scholars, uh, David Murakami Wood and Hagel Benjamin. Hi. Hi, David. Bonjour. Bonjour, Hagel. Bonjour. Hello. <laughs> So yeah. D- David David teaches in the Department of Sociology at Queen's University. Uh, is the director uh, of the Surveillance Studies Center there. But more importantly, he's the incoming professor of Critical Surveillance and Security Studies at the Department of Criminology uh, here at the University of Ottawa. A fact that makes many of us in the National Capital Region very very happy. David is an interdisciplinary uh, scholar uh, in specializing in surveillance, security, and technology in cities from a global perspective, focusing especially on Canada, Japan, the UK, and Brazil. Hagel Benjafel uh, is a researcher at the CNRS Paris, uh, Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. Uh, she's in Paris today. Uh, very importantly, he's also a, a research associate virtually here at the SIPS, which is likewise a fact that makes uh, many of us here in Canada's capital very, very happy. Hager has a PhD in international relations from King's College London. She specializes in the sociology of intelligence uh, with a focus on police forces and Europe. So on today's podcast, I want to talk about the use of the word critical in David uh, and Hager's respective fields, uh, so surveillance and intelligence studies. In my own field of IR, the word is ubiquitous. We have critical theory, critical security studies, critical military studies, critical terrorism studies, all sorts of critical areas of study, programs of study that use the word critical and use it prominently. The way I understand it, the term is often counterposed to mainstream IR and signals a certain readiness to reflect on or reconsider one's conceptual arsenal and normative commitment. So David, let me start with you, since you're 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 about to be called the professor of critical secu- surveillance and security studies. What does critical mean to you and why? Well, as someone who was once referred to as a notorious critical geographer, and that was indeed how I was referred to, um, in, uh, you know, I, I think I've been engaged with critical scholarship uh, for a very long time. I think, you know, 20, 25 years. I don't think any of what I do, I would say, was not at least in some ways acquainted with or involved with being critical. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, well, you know, in, in, in the areas I come from, and this is broadly speaking, urban studies, geography, sociology, to be critical traditionally meant to be Marxist. And that was quite clear, right? There was, uh, you know, there's the journals of critical geography, which, you know, very much were founded on a Marxist perspective. And, you know, even other forms of critique outside of Marxism were not considered to be critical in that sense. Now, I'm not one of those critical scholars. It's not to say I'm not, I can't be as Marxist as the next person on, on a good day, but I, I am, if I am Marxist, I'm very much a heterodox Marxist. I draw on a whole range of different kinds of critiques. And actually, in the end, also as someone who's profoundly influenced by Foucault, and, uh, I, you know, I, I have to recall what uh, Michel Foucault said in an interview in 1978, at one point, when somebody asked him what he thought his, his aim and his goal was in his scholarship. And he said, well, perhaps it's simply this, that maybe not, you know, not everything is as simple as we thought. Mm. And I think in some ways, you know, that's the aim of critical scholarship is to problematize, is to complicate things, you know, to, to take those things which seem to be obvious and seem to be common sense and seem to be taken for granted and to break them apart and to show that, in fact, there's other things going on. This is great. Uh, let's move on to you, Hager. I mean, you are spearheading mm-hmm. efforts to set up essentially a new research agenda on contemporary intelligence that aims uh, to build and maintain alternative lines of inquiry. Mm-hmm. 
uh, to intelligence studies. And, and I know this because when you invited me to one of your conferences or conference mm -hmm. panels, you wrote the word critical in capital letters. And you did this on Twitter saying basically that you wanted only a certain kind of scholars to apply. Uh, mainstreamers need not to do that. So so mm -hmm. tell me tell me what, what, you, what, what what's critical to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think I'll try to link uh, this question to a, like a broader reflection about my experience with intelligence studies and its critical strength, if you like. Um, to be clear, I think there is little that is actually critical in mainstream intelligence studies, in my view. Um, indeed, it is more accurate to think of intelligence studies as a field of scholarship that has served as a source of recognition for intelligence services. And so, as you may already know, you know, the field is largely dominated by Anglo-American scholars and, you know, academics, you know, those ex-practitioners slash scholars who convert, you know, their professional know-how and assumption into academic knowledge, one which is rather taken for granted. Mm. But as I've shown in my work, I mean, this has very adverse effects on the production of knowledge and understanding of intelligence. To give you an example, um, um, intelligence is defined mainly, you know, as a function for the state. And intelligence studies' main purpose is one of improving, you know, the uh, the performances of intelligence services uh, in assisting policy policymaking. This is not to say, however, that, that there hasn't been any attempts from within, you know, to try to reformulate uh, those debates along new lines. So there have been an initiative that have, for instance, examined other forms of intelligence beyond, you know, the Anglosphere or, you know, the famous intelligence cycle. Uh, but others have also gone a step uh, further by formula formulating explicit critical approaches uh, to intelligence, also known as critical intelligence studies. And so the, the, the aim of this project, which is quite uh, recent, is to interrogate the concepts and uh, canons underpinning intelligence studies. But, you know, despite its merits, I think this initiative, and that's the, the, the main problem also with these things called critical, is that they maintain, I would say, the functionalist agenda of intelligence studies, reproducing the ambition, you know, to improve the effectiveness of intelligence services in serving uh, decision makers. And so to me, uh, to be critical is clearly to rupture with the orthodoxy of intelligence studies. And here I mean it's functionalism. And so, and I agree with uh, what David just said, it's about uh, to problematize and interrogate those, I would say, um, mainstream and taken for granted assumptions. So that's why part of my work is, well, in fact, to explore, I would say, uh, the people and intelligence behind, of, of, behind intelligence in order to I would say formulate new understanding of intelligence that actually rupture with common um, assumptions. So it's clearly a very strong sociological uh, focus. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, you know one of the fundamental things that we we'll should be talking about here is, if you like, what is the object? What are the objects of intelligence studies? And and you know how when we're studying intelligence, I mean, you know, you'll get you, as you'll all know, we're all interested in the five eyes here, right? And you'll get people now writing about and talking about the five eyes as if they've always you know, understood this thing, as if they've always admitted the existence of the five eyes. And yeah, I know these same people, we know these same people 20 years ago were denying the existence or refusing to admit the existence of the, the very existence of this thing when they well know, when, when you know, they well knew it existed. Um, and this, this kind of uh, discourse is exactly, you know, what, what you've just been saying, that it's uh, serving, you know, a kind of legitimation function for the intelligence services of various nations rather than being something which critiques or seeks to understand, even seeks to understand this. Just to follow up, would it be safe to say that surveillance studies, since you're one of the co-founders uh, or the leading voices in, in, in this in this relatively new field, David, would, would it be safe to say that 
by definition, surveillance studies is critical? It's an interesting question, and I don't think everyone would say that it is. I mean, I think, in a sense, I'm, I wouldn't claim credit for being one of the founders of surveillance studies. I'm, I'm some ways quite late to the game. You know, when I finished my PhD in 2001, you know, we'd already had, I think, a good 10 years of interesting scholars doing fantastic work on this, you know, from my uh, mentor David Lyon at Queen's to, through to people like Oscar Gandhi, you know, pioneering scholar of colour writing about surveillance in the, in the early 90s. And of course, right back to the early 70s with people like James Rule and Gary Marks writing about, about surveillance studies, you know, or inventing surveillance studies in the 70s. And not least, of course, Foucault, um, you know, with Discipline and Punish, of course. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to claim to be a founder. I may, I may have been involved with setting up a journal, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a minor voice in many ways. But um, do I think it's critical? Um, yeah, I think it, it has always been the intent of surveillance studies to be critical. The very existence of an idea of surveillance studies or treating surveillance as a primary object of research or a lens through which one can see things is a radical notion, right? This is itself the kind of thing that Foucault was arguing is disruptive and, and transformatory of our perspectives. However, any radical notion can become institutionalized, can become ordinary, can become normalized. And, you know, and I think in many ways there has evolved a kind of normal surveillance studies. Uh, since, you know, the 1990s or whatever, a kind of standard perspective, which ironically includes Foucault <laughs> as, as one of the foundations. And I think, you know, many things, therefore, were sort of taken for granted. And there's a kind of new wave of problematization now going on, a new wave of critique, which is very similar to what's going on in international relations, actually. And it revolves around post-colonialism and anti-colonialism. It revolves around thinking critically about race and racialization. And it involves about, you know, ways of rethinking the discipline or the transdisciplinary field. And I think exactly the same thing is going on across academia right now. And it's absolutely essential. And I think any kind of, um, that kind of ongoing sense that criticality is something that evolves, that is something that can't stay still and cannot be taken for granted. Yeah. You know, if I'm still calling myself critical in the same way in 20 years' time, you know, then I've obviously failed in some way, I think. Yeah. This is great. Uh, so it kind of leads me to a question, a follow-up question that I had and it directly is inspired by what you said about international uh, relations. So the discourse of uh, criticality has had some interesting and arguably perverse consequences in my field. So self-defining critical scholars tend to fight with one another quite a bit, accusing each other of not being critical enough. And when you mentioned Marxism earlier, I mean, they're, they're direct echoes with that tradition, right? Uh, so as an occasional critical scholar, I, I guess I, I've been on the receiving end of such criticisms quite a bit. Uh, so, you know, been accused of being self-positivist, uh, liberal, crypto-capitalist, uh, and, and whatever. Um, so the label acts as a signal for more on political virtue, uh, you could say. And I know that saying this kind of has echoes with, with all sorts of political and ideological claims in this, in this political moment. Uh, but, but, but yes, let's, let's call it, some, there's, there's a signaling going on. And this can embolden uh, certain types of argumentation. Uh, it can embolden certain kind of bunkerization. I don't want to use the word balkanization because I come from the Balkans. I don't think it's the right word. Uh, but, you know, even, even some sort of uh, unease and tension bordering on paranoia. Uh, and so that's among scholars. And then there are other perverse consequences, such as the fact that the new right and the far right are using the term critical in all sorts of ways uh, that, that, again, 
lead to uh, to <laughs> paranoia and tension and 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 whatnot. So I, I wonder if you both could maybe comment on 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 this uh, if if you agree that there is such an effect uh, today, David. Uh, okay. Oh, sorry, uh, I get, I get. Sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, just about what you were saying that now the far right, the far left are, are telling themselves they are, you know, critical people. I think what is it's interesting is to kind of reflect upon the social use of the label critical. Who uses this term and what does that mean? And this is something that we can easily relate, for instance, I'm coming back again to intelligence studies, because you do have, I would say, mainstream intelligence scholars who do say now, or oh, we are developing new critical approaches or critique of intelligence studies just because we are, uh, let's say, um, investigating uh, forms of intelligence outside of uh, Anglo, the Anglosphere, for instance. So they are focusing on what's going on in Asia, so Latin America. They're also trying to kind of reformulate the debates within intelligence, uh, the intelligence circle and so on. But the thing is, there's no, um, they, they still remain, I would say, prisoner of the of those frameworks. There's no, there's no, con, I would say, like a, a constant problematization of the concepts and the terms. And I do think that one of the problems of that is because there is not enough, like a strong interdisciplinary, um, I would say, focus of the, of the discipline. So I do think that critical actually means having some sort of sense of interdisciplinarity, being able, in fact, to kind of challenge the main, I would say, um, yeah, the main approaches, but also being able to bring new approaches into the mainstream, such as sociological and let's say anthropological anthropological approach in intelligence study, which are not which are largely absent in the discipline. So I think it's all refers back to how you use the, the term, I mean this label of critical and what does that mean for the discipline in which you are involving, basically. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean I, just to go back to that question of like you know, this sort of conflicts between different forms of radicalism, different forms of criticalism, critical thinking. I mean, I saw a Twitter thread this week, which basically the argument was being made that if you didn't support China, then you weren't a real Marxist. And, uh, you know, any, anybody else was a fair weather Marxist who was basically subject to capture by the American state and therefore was, a, you know, what, what Lenin would have called a useful idiot, essentially. Mm. Um, you know, that you see these kinds of arguments over and over again, where, you know, in order to be you know, something, in order to be labeled something, you have to perform a certain sort of set of acceptable, you know, ideological actions, acceptable uh, actions. And it's like, for those of us who believe we are critical to all, in the sense that we treat everything with the same critical lens, you know, we then get labeled as being essentially sort of, you know, fair weather Marxists or fair weather radical scholars, fair weather critical scholars. Um, and it's a really difficult position to be in, in some ways. By the way, one of the people for this particular Fred was attacking was Noam Chomsky, <laughs> as if like he is somehow an example of not really being critical. <laughs> and one of the most consistently critical voices, you know, of everything that America has done for the last sort of 50 years is somehow not critical enough for some people. Um, and this is a, a real issue, right? But I think there's, there's a double issue here, one of which is the the problems of defining oneself critically within the academy. And then of course the external relationships, the political relationships that are generated through this and the political commitments one has. I mean, there are, there are scholars out there, critical scholars out there, and I know at least one or two, who think that North Korea is treated unfairly and that we should actually all be following, you know, the Juche way because actually it's misunderstood, you know. Um, does that mean they are somehow more critical? Mm. <laughs> I don't think so, right? It, it, you know, that kind of a politics itself can't be put on a scale of critical. It can't be put on a scale of radicality. 
Mm. Um, and that's a mistake if we start playing those kind of games. I mean, to be critical is, to, is an intellectual and political position in the sense that it's a method. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not the content of that critical, criticalness is not predetermined. If it is, then, then, you know, that's, you might as well not bother being an academic at all, right? You must just go and campaign. And I am a campaigner too in many spheres, mm. but I still want to be an academic as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I, this is great. I, I did promise uh, that this podcast uh, would be short, and I want to showcase your work. And as much as I'd love to get into discussion of Chomsky and his relationship to you know various uh, conflicts, uh, we'll move on to your work right now. Uh, so, David, earlier I described you as an interdisciplinary scholar, and you published a lot across several fields, as you mentioned yourself. I had the pleasure of reading and teaching uh, the collection you edited with David Lyon called uh, titled Big Data Surveillance and Security Intelligence. The Canadian case came out uh, last year with UBC Press. And I uh, also uh, appreciated and learned from what you did in Surveillance and Society, the journal you mentioned. It's the journal you co-founded, co-edited. Uh, and I'm thinking of two big double issues, one on platform surveillance in 2019 and one on surveillance and the global turn to authoritarianism. Uh, this was going back to 2017. Uh, this is where I discovered your work as well. So I wanted to, to ask you to tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now or what you are what you intend to work while, while you're here at the University of Ottawa. Well, it's a, it's a very big subject, but yeah, those, those two issues I'm particularly proud of. They were a different kind of issue of the journal that we've done before. They were done as what we call responsive issues. And we actually asked for slightly shorter pieces from an, a larger number of scholars to kind of almost sort of try to define the contours of a field at a particular time. It was a, it was a very ambitious effort and I'm not sure we'll be doing any one of those issues in the near future because they're such hard work. Like producing that was like producing not just a book, but several books. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it, was a, it was extremely hard work, but I'm glad this, the response to them seems to have been exceptionally good and people seem to really value those and, and use them in teaching and all other kinds of things. So I'm very pleased about that. Um, it's funny, in the editorials for those two issues, I really think it's good that you mention them because in some ways, those two editorials, one of which I wrote myself and one with Torin Monaghan, I kind of set out where I'm going with the work that I'm doing right now. It's this sort of like, it sets what I'm interested in fundamentally is the transformations that are going on through surveillance, but not just through surveillance, um, to the fundamental structures of the things we take granted that, that can build up what we would call international relations, what we would, you know, in all kinds of ways like that, but also what we would build, think of internally as sociological. So I'm thinking about things like the state and especially the nation state. One of the most fundamental questions I'm asking right now is in the age of platforms, what is the nation state becoming? And I've been writing quite a lot about this um, and I've been writing quite a lot about the possibilities for other forms of state beyond the nation state in this point in time. And in some ways, that's the kind of one of the underpinning motivations of what I'm doing at the moment. So I'm quite interested, for example, and I've been saying this for a number of years, in whether you know, platforms themselves can become the basis for a new form of statehood, a new kind of state, um, whether one can have non-nation-based forms of state that would be founded on those kinds of, those kinds of uh, infrastructures. And I know, you know, I wrote an article with a former student in our department, Karina Ryder, about how Facebook has that as an overt ambition. That's exactly what Facebook, now Meta, wants to do. 
you know, it does think it can be a state in a way, um, a global pan, you know, a global spanning sort of state mm. of a different nature than current states, but that's what they want to do. Um, and the, their kind of basis for making that assertion is all to do with surveillance and data. It's how much they know about people, how much people interact through that site. You know, it's a kind of a claim. It's a biopolitical claim, if you want to use Foucault. It's saying we understand our population, which is exactly what all nation states at the beginning had to do really to make their claims. We know where our borders are. We know who our people are. We know which are Prussian people, which are non-Prussian people, you know, in the beginning of the, you know, we know who they are. Um, and of course, we know the kind of consequences of that in, in all kinds of uh, situations since. So that's one thing I'm really interested in right now. Um, and I'll continue to be interested in that. I'm particularly interested in certain kinds of ways that comes out and that plays out in experimental kinds of formation. So one of the projects, the major project I'm going to be pursuing for the next few years, is one looking at the rise of what I call platform cities. And these are the combination of this platform governance ideology with smart city technology and that kind of sort of libertarianism, that tech bro libertarianism, you know, the California ideology that's spreading around the world. So this is the creation of supposedly new cities that combine forms of self-government with smart technology, offer you a kind of space where you can do anything free of government interference, build and disrupt and do whatever you like. And there are so many of these projects. Ironically, one of the big ones at the moment is being pushed by the government of Saudi Arabia. And it's one of the big ironies of these things. It's some of the most authoritarian governments, you know, are giving over land and territory to create these kind of weird libertarian charter smart city experiments. And that's a thing called NEON. It's one of the most bizarre projects and going on in the world right now and has real geopolitical implications because it's built right on the border of Egypt, Israel, Jordan. It's like, you know, just in that little corner um, and plans eventually to be overspilling the borders of Saudi Arabia into those places. So it's a really, really strange project from all sorts of angles. But that's only one of many of these kinds of projects in the world right now. So that's my big thing. And uh, the other thing that um, final thing I'm going to mention now that I'm really thinking about is the impact of climate crisis and the climate climate change and the climate crisis and all of these things. Um, I've been a climate activist since early 90s and it gives me no pleasure to see, you know, like many of us, it gives us no pleasure to see ourselves being proved right um, right now. But I want to, you know, this is, you know, we warned this was going to happen. This is what's happening. Um, and but I want to see what the effects of the climate crisis are on a lot of these things and how you know digital platform surveillance technology can both be involved with solving maybe the, the climate crisis, but also might also be involved in in exacerbating it. I'm also quite interested in how intelligence services are also you know may want to or may be able to contribute to or be a barrier. Um, in, to solving the climate crisis. Anyway, that's a very brief overview, real <laughs> huge, and I've got other things too, but I'm also very interested in science fiction, but that's another whole deal. So. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, later uh, when we see each other in person. Uh, I, I'm personally fascinated with the political theory of the Silicon Valley, but also the, the question of climate change and intelligence services. Uh, so Hagen, now to you, uh, I learned, and I'm still learning a lot from your work. Uh, I have in mind your monograph, Anglo-European uh, Intelligence Cooperation, Britain and Europe, Europe and Britain, Routledge 2019. I, we talked about this before the podcast. And also your co-authored pieces in intelligence and national security and international political sociology. The latter uh, was a big hit in my Five Eyes class uh, last summer, and I'm hoping to uh, re, you know, assign it again in the future. Uh, I know you're working on uh, an edited volume with Routledge that looks at the professionals and practices that make up, quote unquote, uh, intelligence today. 
And you just told me that you are one of the editors of a Routledge series on, on critical intelligence. So, so studies, and tell us a little bit about your work today and in the future. Yeah, sure. So um, I think I'll come back to the main project, uh, which I'm working on at the moment, which is, as you, as you just mentioned, you know, like a new research agenda on contemporary intelligence, which is in fact, well, um, driven by like a key uh, question, what is intelligence today? And so um, a few years ago, and I think that was actually after I finished my, my PhD, well, I just decided to like set up a new research agenda on intelligence because I was in fact quite unhappy with the state of knowledge in intelligence studies. And so this agenda seeks in fact to investigate intelligence as well, it is done today by an increasing number of professionals in a growing number of uh, empirical sites. And well, as you already know, intelligence is no longer just about, you know, espionage and national security. It has diversified to deal with other problems and become connected to surveillance, policy, counterterrorism, and, and, so, and so on. And so the, the, the social evolution of intelligence outside intelligence services, while well, that has the effect of increasing the number uh, of professions and professionals who have a stake in intelligence. So now we have police officers, data analysts, border guards, and so on, who well, practice intelligence. So uh, from that perspective, so the, over, the overarching aim of this project is to build, as I said before, like alternative lines of inquiry to intelligence studies, lines that generate, I would say, new knowledge on intelligence within and beyond intelligence communities by shifting the lens towards people and everyday practices. And for that reason, so this project is not critical intelligence studies. So what sets our project apart from intelligence studies and the critical strengths altogether mm -hmm. is that we take the study of you know, the, the people and practices of intelligence as the immediate point of departure. So in other words, the, we don't seek to make intelligence services better advisors to policymakers. And also because, you know, intelligence is you know moving across many areas in society we also think that it study needs to be uh to move between different disciplines and so that's why i also, i later transform this initiative into a, like a collective and transdisciplinary project by bringing uh, together a group of scholars who work across uh, civilian studies, social legal studies, and also international political sociology, you know, to connect those trends, you know, of the literature that study the people and practices entangled with intelligence. And so, as, as you said, Sergeant, um, I have a forthcoming edited volume uh, setting up this research agenda um, entitled Problematizing Intelligence Studies Towards a New Research Agenda. So the book, I hope, will be published in June this year. And this will also be the first volume and of a brand new Rutledge uh, series called New Intention Studies that I will uh, co-edit with uh, Sebastian Lassen, who's been my my partner in crime for for many years. So this, this is, is the, the, yeah, this is the main the main thing that I'm busy with at the moment. Yeah. Uh, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. I, I did promise that you know we won't go over 30 minutes. I think we're we're almost there. Uh, <coughs> so I'll stop with questions. Sorry, uh, but I want I do want to say uh, once again uh, thank you. Uh, for your time and interest in talking to me. I'm very happy that both of you will be at the University of Ottawa later this year. I'm very much looking forward to interacting with you in person, maybe you know, go for a coffee or a drink of some kind. And I thank you once again uh, for your time. My name is Sajan Vucetic, and we've been talking about intelligence and surveillance studies. Uh, thank you, stay well, and until uh, the next time.